Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. Thanks for checking us out. The mission of the show is to bring all bicycle-loving people from around the world together to share stories and make connections. This show isn't about name-dropping, gear, and race results. There's nothing wrong with those things. But this is about the stories that tie us all together with our love of cycling and bicycles. You can listen while you're wrenching in the shop, while you're on a trainer, or while you're commuting, or even making dinner. This time, we've got Jenny Callista, who started her own bicycle mechanic school. Darrell Lewis in Japan, cycling around and telling us what it's like there. And Keith Narona from Reynolds Technologies, talks about the past, history, and future of Steel is Real for building bikes. You have a lot of podcasts you could listen to, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. A lot of people ask me where they should get their bikes tuned up. And to be honest, most places will do a pretty good job. Occasionally though, you find a shop that really drops the ball. Our next story is about the unexpected and curious journey of Jenny Callista and how she went to develop not only her own bicycle mechanic school, which is the only one on the east side of the United States that I know of, but at the same time developing professional standards through the PBMA, the Professional Bicycle Mechanics Association. If you had to predict where the story started and where it was going, you'd probably have a hard time doing that. So let's see how it happened. Well, I really love your story, Jenny, but um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to use it. Oh, no. I mean, because there's just, if I had a nickel for every story that I've recorded about people going from glass blowing to making full-size dinosaurs to then going back into the bicycle industry, I mean, that's like the way to go. There must be dozens of people going that route these days, glass blowing to, you know, the life-size dinosaur to bicycle industry. So, I mean, maybe people are tired of hearing of that one. <laughs> <laughs> did I get you for a second? Did I... You kind of did. <laughs> That's hilarious. I'm Jenny Callista, and I founded Appalachian Bicycle Institute, a small school in Asheville, North Carolina, back in 2010, and helped found the Professional Bicycle Mechanics Association just almost three years ago. Um, that's me, and I'm a teacher, I'm an advocate, I'm a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> and that's, I guess that's it. <laughs> Gosh, is there a need for professionalism in the bike? Yes, absolutely. There is a huge need for professionalism in the bike industry, but the thing that has to be understood about it is it's pretty unique compared to many other industries like that involve vehicles or, or machinery like the automotive industry or the aviation industry. You know, we, we, we work on machines that uh, people's lives depend on them, quite literally. And so if you don't you know, know what you're doing and you tighten a bolt 
too much or not enough or, or whatever, uh, somebody could die. And that's, <laughs> you know, like rarer than common. But, I mean, it happens um, occasionally. But it's also an industry that doesn't have clear um, pathways for progress and certification. So that's something that we with the Professional Bicycle Mechanics Association have been striving towards creating and getting the rest of the industry on board with us has not been super difficult, but um, it's, you know, it's a work in progress. So, you know, you see these kids that get jobs at bike shops and uh, do you want that kid working on your $10,000 electronic shifting system with hydraulics and all kinds of uh complicated systems who doesn't know what he's doing you know um no <laughs> probably not um but it's hard to keep good mechanics in our industry because the pay is so it's peanuts um bike mechanics really don't make a whole lot of money so that's part of our impetus as well is to elevate the bike mechanic and their their status within the industry, especially since bicycles are getting more and more complicated and uh, technologically advanced. I mean, holy moly, keeping up with it is like, it's like keeping up with a freight train. It's going super fast and just not stopping. So yeah, there's a need. <laughs> there's absolutely a need. You know, things that are just plain dangerous. Um, there's a lot of shops in this country that are just hanging on by a thread or struggling in whatever way. It's not a, an industry that traditionally has made anybody a whole lot of money. You know, we have the joke in the industry, if you want to make a million dollars in the bike industry, start with two, ha, ha, ha. You know, it's not that funny, really, for those of us who have been in the industry. But, you know, we, we hear that all the time, you know. A lot of bike shops can't afford to pay for a good quality mechanic. So you've got somebody, for example, that, you know, has been in the industry for, for 10 years working as a bike mechanic. They are either uh, living in an apartment with, you know, however many other people. They've got maybe a car, but it's definitely worth, like, way less than their bicycle. And they're just doing the bike mechanic gig because they love it. Or... They have a wife or a spouse who makes all the money, you know. So I've worked with plenty of mechanics uh, over the years whose wife was a, a lawyer or a veterinarian or, uh, you know, whatever, doctor. And they just get to play bike all day, <laughs> you know. So it's not been an industry where you meet professionals who, you know, are supporting their families and saving for retirement and, and that kind of thing because it simply doesn't exist. So... As a typical story goes for a bike mechanic is, you know, you get into it at whatever age, uh, you enjoy it, you love it, and then at some point you hit sort of this, like, economic wall where you realize, like, holy shit, if I really want to do anything, you know, with, with my life as far as, you know, save for retirement or, or put kids through college or any of these, like, you know, sort of landmarky things that people do, um, I can't work here anymore. And so they go into the industry elsewhere and they become like inside reps or go into the engineering field at a bike shop or at a, at a big company or, you know, something that's not within the bike shop or management position maybe or something like that. It doesn't pay very well either, you know, or they start a school, <laughs> which is what I did. If I was still working at the bike shop for the 
you know, and no disrespect to anybody who ever employed me because I did have really great bosses. I had people I worked for who I respected, I admired, uh, you know, and still do to this day. So, um, you know, no disrespect to the owners, but I could not do and have what I'm able to do and have now, like pay my mortgage and feed my girls and, you know, have a motorcycle on the side for fun, you know? I mean, I drive a, an old Volvo. <laughs> it's got almost 350,000 miles on it. But, you know, we, we, we learn how to prioritize, of course, in, in anything that we do. But I couldn't continue working in a bike shop. I mean, it just was not economically feasible for me as much as I loved it, you know? And I, I miss I miss working in a bike shop. I miss the camaraderie of having fellow mechanics to help with problem-solving things and and just the problem-solving aspect of being a bike mechanic, that's like a majority of what we do. You know, we are problem solvers and we're also cleaners. That's a big, big part of being a bike mechanic is just cleaning things, cleaning, regreasing, overhauling, you know. But there's a lot of zen to that that I really enjoy. Like as far as horror stories go, like what I've seen from other mechanics, the worst of it was probably not so much seeing it from the bike shops because, you know, yeah, every once in a while somebody would come in and they'd be like, oh, well, I had the bike shop across the street or down the road or, you know, across town or whatever, work on this and you see like, oh my God, like that's like, who did that? That's terrible. That's wrong or whatever. Um, that happens every once in a while, but what really kind of made me after after a while, I was just like I couldn't be surprised by anything. But for the first few runs, I was a, a team mechanic um, for neutral support at Ironman races for a number of years, and you know I traveled all over the country uh, working on all these tri bikes. Which you know, ask any bike mechanic like, do you like working on tri bikes? You know, you're not going to get very many people who are enthusiastically raising their hands. You know, usually at the bike shop, if somebody rolls in with a tri bike, all the mechanics in the shop are like, not it. <laughs> Nobody wanted to touch those things. You know, because the stuff that people do on their tri bikes, it's gross. Wedding on a tri bike, so a triathlon bike. But there's wedding, yes, there's, but everybody sweats on their bikes. There's other things that people do on their bikes. So one of the very first races that I did, you know, we ride on these little scooters and we've got wheels and tools and tubes and tires and chains and cables and we've got anything that we need pretty much to help anybody on the course. And so me being kind of a noob to this whole thing, I was on my little scooter cresting a hill. This was in, this was in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, beautiful country, big hills and stuff. And so Cresting this hill, it's just sort of midday, so the whole field is sort of stretched out over the whole course. And so I'm behind this woman, and she's she's starting to get into her little tuck, and she's descending this hill. And I'm thinking to myself as I see this spray of fluid emanating from the back of her bicycle, and it was not a rainy day. There were there's no nothing on the road, okay. And I think to myself, oh how funny, her water bottle sprung. Uh, Lee, wait, that's no water bottle. Oh, crap. <laughs> I had to, like, steer to get out of the spray that was flying in my direction. And, of course, I was in shock. But, I mean, after a while, you're just, like, not in shock. You you, you see, like, during some of these races where, you know, these poor beleaguered athletes are, you know, towards the end of the day. And you see, like, just this horrific 
they do disgusting things on their bikes, you know, and there's, it's not that there aren't bathrooms or porta potties at the rest stops, you know, all that stuff exists, you know, but you get some of these age groupers and the, you know, the pros do what the pros do, whatever. Usually they're so fast nobody can even tell, but it's these, the age groupers, like the majority of the field at these Ironman events where, you know, they're so gung ho and they've been training for a year and it's like they've been obsessed with it. And they think like this is what they're supposed to do, that they're just like, I'm just, I'm not supposed to stop. I'm just supposed to keep riding. And so that's what they do. So anyway, <laughs> back to the mechanics of working on their bikes. They're, they're difficult to work on because a lot of tri bikes are just, um, you know, hard to work on. They've got an, all this internal routing, which of course is becoming commonplace these days, but uh, you know, brakes behind crank sets and, you know, just complicated stuff to make them arrow. You know, that's, that's plenty enough right there. Uh, you know, let alone all the disgusting, crusty stuff that happens. But, but just going to these races and, and being, you know, in these sites all over the country and having these athletes come in before the race, just thinking that they're going to take the bike by our booth to have things checked out because they're these nervous little racehorses and they're paranoid about everything and they just want to double check, triple check, make, make sure everything on their bike is good. And a lot of these triathletes are not really cyclists. They're more like swimmers or runners, you know, typically. But Triathletes, yeah. not to stereotype and not to put anybody down, just they do have a reputation of not being so much a bicycle lover as much as seeing a bicycle as a means to an end as a part kind of, of the yeah. That yeah. seems to be the case for, you know, a significant percentage. I mean, there certainly are some people who get into triathlon from cycling, but it seems like a lot of the athletes that want to compete in an Ironman um, are either swimmers or runners. It seems like that's been the case and anybody I've talked to, like, that's kind of like their strength so you know which is weird because the bike is like you know the technically like the biggest component as far as machinery goes right so for the swim you know, aside from maybe needing a wetsuit you know you got you got goggles and a swimsuit right and then for the run you got shoes <laughs> so for the bicycle like if you want a good dry bike they're easily five thousand dollars or more you know, of course, plenty of people make it on just whatever. I mean, holy cow, we've seen some people come in on, you know, bikes from the 70s or, you know, like hybrid bikes yeah, and mountain you put bikes. A, you or, put an aero bar on it and it's a tri-bike. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, but just just traveling the country and having these people come in, you know, and, and wanting to get their bikes checked out. And they're like, yeah, I was just, you know, I just had this bike tuned up. I was just in the bike shop. I just want you guys to do a quick check. And I'll do the quote-unquote quick check and I put the bike in my stand and I'm like holy cow who who did this tune-up because you need a chain you need a cassette your brake cable is uh, you know about to fray or you know what like whatever the deal is they're like oh my god I had no idea like they just I paid so many you know however much money to get this looked at and you're telling me there's all this stuff wrong and it's like yeah I'm sorry you know but I wouldn't ride your bike like this <laughs> you know it needs all this stuff so it was just kind of amazing to see the work of mechanics all over the country who were just not doing good work, you know. I mean, it's not to like berate the whole the whole of mechanics, but it's just the kind of job where because there are not 
you know, as strict as standards or even really much in the way of standards at all sometimes, how much bad work is getting produced. And so with the PVMA, what we're hoping to do is not only just create these standards, but to create pathways and to elevate not just bike mechanics, but the entire industry through what we do. School kind of came first because I started the school back in 2010. So when I started into the bike industry, I was 19 years old and I got a job with a guy that I knew who had a little bike shop and I wanted to learn how to work on bikes because I've always been kind of mechanical. And so I worked at his shop for a little bit, got a job at the biggest shop in town. Um, this is back in Illinois where I came from. I'm from Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. and. I worked there for a, a few years and then moved to, to the Asheville area. And when I moved to Asheville, I moved to Asheville not to do anything with bikes necessarily aside from ride them. I was racing before I moved here and riding kind of a lot, but I was also super, super interested in glass blowing. So my very last semester at the University of Illinois, I took a glass blowing class and fell in love with it and just knew that that was going to be my future and my destiny. Uh, was to be a glass blower. So learning about the Asheville area and the huge number of glass blowers that we had back then, and this is like, you know, mid 90s, I got jobs with various glass blowers and thought I was going to pursue that and also got a job working with a steel worker. So I was doing life size skeletal kinetic structures of dinosaurs with this guy for a number of years. So cold forging, welding, plasma cutting, all this Wait, 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 full stop. <laughs> full stop. Yeah. You built dinosaurs? Yeah, yeah. Uh, life size, uh, which, you know, some dinosaurs were like dog size, you know, but worked on Triceratops and Diplodocus and Plesiosaurs, which are all pretty big dinosaurs. <laughs> But yeah, we would um, we would hammer out each half of a uh, bone, so we would kind of map out the skeletal structure onto 16 gauge steel. So each half of that bone, I would cut out with a plasma torch, and then take it to my stump with a ball peen hammer and hammer at those halves until they became dished, and then welded the two dishes together to make a 3D bone. And so. The way that I worked with this guy who, he looked like Kenny Rogers. He's dead now. He died a number of years ago. His name was John Payne and he was pretty famous here in the, in the Asheville area, but I, I apprenticed with him for about three years building these dinosaurs. So he would make the skulls and I made all the body parts. So I made all the bones. I cut all of the tubing that we made the spines out of. And so it was the cold forging was the ball peen hammering, which I, I hammered on steel with, of course, earplugs, but, you know, for hours at a time every day that I worked with him, and then all the welding, and then we built all these structures to hang the dinosaurs on, and we had made our own ball joints and everything for these things, so it just, it basically looked like a skeleton, but it was all made out of steel. You know, the jaws would snap, and the elbows and arms would move, and we'd set them up on pulleys and, and cables and stuff, and... Um, and they looked pretty. They looked pretty cool. It was it was actually a lot of fun to work with him. So every other week I worked with him, and the other every other week I worked with a glass blower, and that was that was my life for like six years. Um, so I was away from the industry for a while. So that was from from the time I moved here in '97 until 2003 when 
when I was working as a glass blower, I made these little blocks of dropped hot glass, and I sandwiched little copper images into them because copper is the only material that has uh, got the same heat coefficient as glass, so when it cools, it doesn't crack it if you insert copper elements into it. So I made bicycles. <laughs> And the couple that owns um, Liberty Bicycles came into the studio during a studio stroll, which is where we demonstrate what we're doing, and watched me blowing and stuff and saw my little bicycles, and we, we were chatting a little bit, and I said that I had uh, tried applying at their bike shop um, because things with glass were starting to get a little slower, and I was uh, not working with the uh, the metal worker anymore because that was just like a three-year thing. And I just kind of wanted to get back into working on bikes again. And so I applied, and I, and I didn't get hired. And I was like, yeah, I applied there. And they were like, oh, you did? Oh, how interesting, as they were, like, purchasing these blocks to give to their employees as 20-year thank you for working for us uh, gifts, which is a testament to any bike shop that can hang on to an employee for 20 years. And maybe it was 15-year awards, but anyway, it was a high, high number. They are wonderful people, and they have an awesome bike shop, one of the biggest shops in the southeast. After buying those blocks from me, it was a couple weeks later that they came back to the shop when I was actually out of town, and they were like, hey, we want to talk to Jenny. We want to hire her. So when I came back from out of town, our shopmate was like, hey, the owners from Liberty came, and they want to hire you. And I just was ecstatic. I was so excited. So I got back into the industry working for them, and having been out of it for six years, disc brakes came into the market, rear suspension became a thing, and I had a lot of catching up to do. So one of my very best friends at the time was the instructor at Barnett Bicycle Institute. She was the head instructor, and I was trying to kind of angle and finagle my way into going to the school and, and kind of catching up and learning some stuff. And so the owners were all about it at Liberty, and they sent me there. I stayed with my friend. The instructor rode her bike to class every day and kind of got caught up and got a big head <laughs> after learning all this stuff. I took all the classes there. It was like a three-week a three week stay and just dived right back into the industry from 2003 onward. So working for those two, that couple at Liberty, I started teaching classes like little maintenance classes because they had been teaching them there, like whoever me mechanic wanted to do it, and nobody at that time that I was working there really was interested in doing it. So it kind of became a nice little racket for me because we got to keep the money that we made for charging for the classes, like 35 bucks a class or something. A couple of nights, all the basics, you know, how to loop your chain, adjust your brakes and gears, change your flat, all the basic stuff. And I really enjoyed teaching, you know, as much as like some days I would sort of dread having to stay a couple hours later to, to teach the class because I'd have to, you know, I was working all day. By the time I was done teaching that class and walking towards my car, I had to biggest smile on my face and just the deepest sense of satisfaction watching the light bulbs going off over people's heads as they understood how their bikes worked. So teaching there for a number of years kind of set in motion the little wheels in my brain that made me think, well, hmm, there's, there's no school east of Colorado. Like there's BBI that's in Colorado Springs, which is where I went. There's United Bicycle Institute in Oregon, uh, which is a long, long-standing school, an awesome school. I, I'd never been to it, but um, I, I know the owners there and some of the some of the instructors, um, wonderful people. So I started thinking to myself, well, I I want to start a school, and part of 
the idea of starting the school was realizing that we didn't have any kind of a certification system. And so I thought, well, if I start this school and get into education, maybe there's some way that I can start to like work on this idea of creating a nationally accepted certifying program for bike mechanics. What is the school like? Do you have casual courses? How is the school set up? Well, so so I, I had gone to Barnett's, of course, um, and I really loved my experience. It was an amazing experience, and you know the whole operation there was was conducted with utmost professionalism. And yet, you know, being being a small small business person, I, I think the best way to start any business is to start small. And when I had the idea to start a school, of course, it, it took years before I was able to manifest it because I, I didn't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I didn't really have much in the way of, like, resources, you know. I don't have rich parents. But you did have again. a bunch of giant dinosaurs. Um, No, that was, I, I, I worked on them. I didn't get to keep any of that stuff. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> that is so cruel. Um, you can't keep any of the ones you worked on? What about, like, the extra oh, ones? There weren't any extra oh, ones? There's, no. Oh, my oh gosh, my no. That yeah, seems so no. cruel. Well, you know, I mean, I... I still have all the skills and like metalwork is definitely something that I really deeply enjoy doing. It's so forgiving compared to glass blowing. I mean, as a glass blower, you're on eggshells the whole time and if you if you mess it up, I mean, there goes, you know, hundreds of dollars because it's super expensive to melt the glass and keep it hot and it's so it's just so expensive whereas, you know, steel, you, you know, you you mess it up, you can just fix it. You know, like it's just like it's not it's so forgiving. It's such a great medium to work with as an artist. Um, so, oh, there's definitely more steel work in my future, but no full dinosaurs. No, those those all got um, they all got crated up. I have nothing to show for it practically, except for just a few little bits and pieces that I made here and there. You know, some little sculptures that are kicking around my house. It was fun. Honestly, I have no idea where they are right now. I wish I knew. How I started the school, like so, I have I had the building that my ex-husband and I had built on our property, and it's just like a little thousand square foot steel metal building that we had built like almost 15 years ago, like 12 years ago, 13, I don't know, something like that, a long time ago. Um, and my ex-husband and I split up. You know, these things happen. He's a wonderful human being. But so when I started thinking about this school. It was so daunting, you know, it was like, well, how am I going to be able to do this? I don't have any money. I don't have anything. And I went and met up with the small business director at a small community college that was down in Brevard, which is kind of like one of the next towns south of Asheville. And he he was awesome. The director, you know, this is what they do. Like they, they get your idea of a small business and they help you flesh out the details and navigate all the, you know, legal schmeagle stuff or whatever so that you can start your business. And so... You know, I told him my idea. I was like, I want to start a school for bike mechanics. And he was like, oh, well, how many of these are there? And I was like, um, two in the whole country. And the closest one is in Colorado. So he like immediately lit up and he was like, oh, so you could almost like have like a little corner on a market or, you know, whatever. Like it sounded like a very viable business idea to him. So he was super helpful and super encouraging. But anyway, so I had this 1,000 square foot building that basically was just housing 
I don't know, thirty or forty thousand dollars worth of, of glass. You know, there's all these vases and bowls and you know, big beautiful pieces of glass that we had made. And my ex-husband was a—he he decided to be a truck driver, and so that was part of why we split up. I never saw him anymore. He was always gone, and his truck driving thing just didn't go very well. All he knew was glass, and he was just trying to make this new thing work because the glass thing just was—you know—just we lost so much money in the early '90s trying to keep it going. Galleries were closing, and people just weren't buying glass anymore like they were in the '90s. So, so anyway, it was an amical split up, and I kept the house, um, and we had this this building. And so when my advisor guy, my, the director of the small business center, asked me, like, well, so where, you know, how much space do you need and where do you think you'd like to do this? I mean, do you have, like, a spare bedroom in your house? Is there some way that you could, like, maybe just start small that way? I'm like thinking to myself, like, bedroom. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want people in my house, you know. I was like, well, I've got a thousand square foot building on my property. And he was like, What? So next meeting, I showed him pictures, and he was like, oh, my gosh. Well, here you go. You've got the space. And at that time, it had no electricity running to it except for a drop cord. I had an extension cord going out to it, uh, you know, to run, like, a couple of lights or whatever. And he was like, well, we'll just, we'll, this is what we'll do. And so he proposed that I write a press release and that we send it to all these various publications one of which was the publication, The Blue Ridge Outdoors. And The Blue Ridge Outdoors is part of a larger company that does outdoor enthusiast-type uh, publications, like free publications, you know, along with your, like, mm -hmm. weekly arts and entertainment magazines or, what you know, whatever. And The Blue Ridge Outdoors covers the whole Blue Ridge Mountains, so it's, like, all the way from, like, Maryland, Western Virginia, Virginia, the Carolinas, uh, down to Georgia. So they've got a huge swath of distribution with that particular publication so so that publication reached out to me after they got my press release and they were like wow this is exciting we want to do an article about you so they did a three page spread about me that publication came out in November of 2010 and I had just started the school the month before and that publication that article filled the entire first half year of my classes so all these people, after reading the Blue Ridge Outdoors article, were emailing me, wow, I read about your school, and I really want to come and take a class. So I was offering wheel building and a basic two-day class. So back to your original question, what kind of classes do I teach and what kind of people do I have? Part of what I wanted to do with my school, aside from, you know, just starting small and, you know, being sort of like this little homegrown operation, was to have a little bit of a different feel than what I had experienced at Barnett's. I really loved my experience there, but there was a certain type of, the best word that I can come up with is sterility. It was, it felt like a sterile environment in some ways because, you know, I think sometimes in education, you know, what we're doing is just sort of like, hurting students through this program and not having enough of a student to teacher ratio balance that allows a lot of individual attention. So like the class that I was in at Barnett's that was like 16 other students were in the class with me and we had two instructors. So there wasn't really a lot of time to ask questions, you know, without feeling like you were sort of holding up the rest of the class or whatever. And so with my small space and with my small idea that I had, I only wanted to teach four students at a time. So when I was teaching classes at the bike shop, I had six to 
sometimes I'd squeeze eight people in, but usually six was comfortable. So one teacher to six students. To me, for my school, felt like even a little much, right? So I wanted to do just four students at a time. So I'd have two double-headed park stands and a bench in between them so that each side of the classroom, so each double-headed side, got one tool bench, right? So the students are basically like pairing up and sharing. So the idea with that is that people kind of get to know each other, they feel comfortable with one another, they feel comfortable asking questions. All of my classes are designed to be foundational in their nature. So currently I do teach the most expansive and detailed Fox shock suspension class in the world. (laughs) It's not actually an exaggeration, it's totally true. Um, I teach a three-day class on Fox components. I I have a really good friend who works at Fox, and uh, we partnered up back in 2012 to start teaching Fox classes. And it started as a two-day class, and I have since since this past year expanded it into a three-day class. And so we do fork basic service, we do fork damper service, we do shock service, both seals and dampers and nitrogen charging, we do bushing service for shock lowers or for fork lowers and all kinds of other stuff. So it's a more advanced class than what anybody is offering anywhere, partially because I find suspension super fascinating. So it's a really fun class to teach, but even somebody who has the most rudimentary experience with suspension, it's designed for them. It's designed for people who already have a little bit of experience with suspension, but they probably don't have as much as what I'm going to be able to teach them in that class. So my two-day class, kind of getting your feet wet kind of thing. You learn all the basics. With my five-day class, people can come and bring projects. So one of my recent classes, I had a woman who had built a bicycle at Brew Cycles, which is in Boone, North Carolina. It's a small frame builder guy who you can go teach a class or you can go take a class with him and he will teach you how to build a frame from design to tube selection, to welding, to you walk out with a painted or powder coated frame out of that class. It's a super great program. So she brought a frame that she had built, and I guess it was a couple of years ago, and a couple of boxes full of components. And by the end of the five-day class, she rolled out with a complete bike. So it's those kinds of things that we do. So rather than having like these bicycles that are sort of like standard, you know, non, hadn't been ridden, or just are like the, the parts and the component, you know, just the frame and everything, we put stuff together as it should be. People bring their own bikes, and so we see how things actually are. Right, so we problem solve, you know, we figure out things uh, in real time, so to speak. So my class is much more kind of in the vein of people getting to see like how the real world works rather than this is how you set up a derailleur and this is how it should be. It's like, okay, this is how you set up a derailleur, this is how it should be, but you'll see (laughs) if you crash your derailleur, then this thing happens or, you know, whatever. So that's kind of the difference with what I do. It's small, it's rustic, but there's a lot, a lot, a lot of personal attention for each student. And whether somebody comes from a bike shop or whether somebody just wants to learn how to work on their own bike or wants to start leading tours or just being helpful to other people in their community, like I had a guy from Louisville who He came to my class because he felt bad for all of the homeless people who, you know, he'd see walking their bikes because they had a flat tire or because their chain fell off and he wanted to help them. So I get so many interesting people who come through the school 
And that's really, that's the best part is I get to meet so many varying people and they're all super cool and they all want to be at my school. <laughs> so it kind of makes things easy. Yeah. So if people want to find out more about your school, where would they go? Okay, so AppalachianBicycleInstitute.com is the website where I have my schedule and all kinds of information about me. Appalachian Bicycle Institute is the handle for both Instagram and Facebook. How about to find out more about the PBMA? Yeah, so our, our mission statement is that we develop, promote, and advocate for the professional bicycle mechanic by creating a certification protocol and a system, then there is more of a level of confidence that hopefully not just the shop can have in mechanics that are being hired, but also for customers that go into a bike shop. If they see PBMA certified mechanics work there, then there's a level of confidence that they're going to have their stuff worked on properly. I can't say enough about how devoted I feel to the PBMA and, and the work that we're doing. So to find out more about them, where would we go? ProBMA.org. That's the website. So um, all of the information is on the website as far as what we're doing. Board of Directors, I'm on it. You know, who we are, what we're doing, where we're going. All that kind of stuff is going to be on that website. ProBMA.org. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, well, it's that time on the Bike Karma podcast mid-roll where we give some gratitude and thank you for people who have helped us out online. Chris in Cole, Ohio, and everybody else who left a positive rating or a positive review on iTunes, thank you very much. Thank you to Ja Rodriguez, 1975, J-Cube Sergeant, VCHL6F, this is like a vision test, HWWD8R, PFK 89S, VDRWV7, JCT33, Mr. Psycho number two, and everyone else for following on Podbeam and elsewhere. Thank you. Thank you to East Coast Greenway, BC Graham, Raymond George of the Ohio Gravel Grinders, H. Greenstein, Naj Aural, Velocipedian, the Capo Velo Cycling Collective, Bike Roar, and everyone else who's helped share on Instagram, Twitter, and elsewhere. Thank you very much. It really helps the show when you share and talk about it on social media, and I appreciate that all. The Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. If you like the show, you know it's a labor of love. I have a day job and my goal is to break even with expenses and still be able to share bicycle stories with people from around the world. The Frame and Wheel has stepped up to help support the show and you could help send some love back by taking just a minute to follow them on Instagram and Facebook. Keep them in mind when you think about selling or even buying quality cycling items. 
Have a friend who constantly upgrades their bike and has boxes of quality parts they're hanging onto? Just mention the frame and wheel to them. Is your old dream bike hanging in your garage because your new dream bike takes all your attention? Fred at the Frame and Wheel can help turn that into cash without the hassle of selling it yourself. Looking for a quality bicycle parts or accessories at a great price? Check out the Frame and Wheel on their Facebook group, eBay, and at theframeandwheel.com. He works with bike shops, organizations, charities, and individuals. If you or someone you know needs more time, space, or cash, check out Fred Thomas and the Frame and Wheel. Now back to the show. One of the best parts of doing this show is talking to people from all over the world and making connections through sharing stories about bicycles. Darrell Lewis is on the other side of the world. And I mean, I may be taking liberties here, but I think we would hang out and watch a Star Wars movie and go for a bike ride if you were not separated by half the planet. Here's a small slice of what it's like to be a cyclist in Japan. I was cycling one day with our proximity to the oceans, like you'll see some aquatic life. And uh, we have something called soldier crabs and they were just marching across the street. And um, you don't want to run them over because they will definitely put a puncture in your tire. That was probably one of the funniest things because I, I kept hearing something crossing the street and it was just these gigantic crabs. <laughs> it was just a whole <laughs> army of them. And I think that's the craziest thing. And I mean, you can only look in awe because I mean, you can the ocean's only a mile away where I'm at. And, you will see these crabs just crawling, you know, just give them their respect, let them cross over, just don't run them over. Because <laughs> that's a unique aspect of being on the top of the island. My name is Darrell Lewis, originally born in Shaw Air Force Base, South Carolina, but hometown now is Montgomery, Alabama. But I'm living overseas in Okinawa, Japan right now. Most people just call me D. Yeah, I got to Japan when I joined the military. I enlisted back in, oh man, 2005. Got over here, yeah, October of 2005. From there, I met my wife in 07. Then in 09, I went to South Korea, then came back to Japan. Stayed here until I got out in 2013. I elected to stay in Japan. I couldn't go back to the States at the time because she was pregnant with my second child. So um, I decided just to stick it out here, and uh, it's, it's been a great decision, you know, loving it out here. Did you ride bikes back in the States? Actually, I rode bikes a little bit. The area, my hometown of Montgomery, Alabama, is actually, uh, it's not the friendliest bike place. Going out in the countryside is your best bet for mountain biking. I, I was mostly into BMX back in the States. I was a big BMX fan. Uh, Matt Hoffman was one of my favorite ones growing up. Then when did you get back into biking again as an adult? And now you're cycling all over Japan. Okay, so it started, um, I got big into mountain biking when I was doing my one-year tour in uh, South Korea. I had my, it was a Cannondale F7, actually, that's what I had. That put the spark back in. Then I got back over to Okinawa, Japan, got into road cycling. After I got out the military, I had kind of, uh, I had to start over again, you know, just as far as like career rides. So I, I opted to go with cycling as more of a commuting aspect. 
when I had a Trek Domani. That was my commuter for about a year. Then I got another Trek mountain bike, and that was my other commuter. And uh, I, it was a great means of just getting around town, knocking out groceries, saving money. And it really, you know, it was a great um, stress relief, too, at the time, because uh, we were kind of a low income, and it was actually a way to help um, balance my income by not having a second vehicle. And did you find it more bicycle-friendly? Oh, yes. I would say um, for the part of Okinawa I'm in, I'm in the Central Island right now. It is a way faster commute using the bike here. The bicycle is viewed as a uh, light vehicle here. It is actually an economical and it is a great sustainable means for for use daily. From the time I started, let's see, 2013 is when I started bike commuting. Uh, I would say, let's see, I probably saved several thousand dollars just in gas and fees. And I would think now um, I can't commute as much as I'd like to because I, I live, my job is further up north, but I usually get like one or two days. I would say that the island of Okinawa, they, they've done a great job with the cycle commuting here. Um, it's actually part of the driver's course here on respecting cyclists, giving them a certain amount of space. It's integrated here more. Um, I, I wish the states had more of this. And uh, there, there's no bike lanes here. There, there are no bike lanes, so you're just biking with traffic. But with that, there's also like additional responsibilities here. You can get citations if your bike doesn't have proper working lights. You have to give, you know, right-of-way pedestrians. It's almost like I say, it's, it's like a, it's like an actual vehicle here. But, uh, you know, I'm grateful for it because, uh, you know, it's it's pretty safe. Um, the cyclo community is pretty strong here. Um, we not only have, like, Japanese cyclists, we got people from Australia, England. We, it's a pretty big community out here. But, uh, yeah, it's great. It's a great, friendly community. I can't complain about it. When you're biking around, how many other bikes do you see on the road? I would say I would probably see about 20 or 30 cyclists. On the weekends, I would probably see about 40, 40 or 50. It's pretty common here, but like even on my commutes, I usually see about 20 or so other cyclists. It's pretty big over here. But yeah, it's, it's uh, pretty great. Even when like you have a flat or anything, usually at least one cyclist will come up to you and they'll, you know, offer a hand or, you know, some type of assistance. So yeah, it's, it's, it's fairly common to see cyclists on the road here. The weather is great. We're going through a rainy season right now, so it's kind of high humidity. But once the winter really kicks off, um, around September, oh yeah, you'll see you'll see plenty of cyclists out. So temperature, this is going to be an interesting one. So right now we're in our 80s, but we're looking at 95% humidity. So hydration is key over here. During the winter, you're looking at probably temps in this. 60s, 70s. So, I mean, it, it is great bike weather and it'll be low humidity in the winter. So, pretty much once winter hits, like more, you'll see even more cyclists out. But yeah, our summer months, yeah, it can be pretty brutal. Um, I usually aim for like the early morning rides because humidity, yeah, it, it'll, it'll, it'll zap the energy out of you. <laughs> okay, the top three differences between cycling in Japan and elsewhere. So here, the sidewalks actually are designated for cyclists, you, and you'll see them with, there's a sign on the sidewalk. But the key aspect of it is that you have to cycle at less than 10 kilometers per hour. So that's around seven, six miles per hour. Anything greater than that, if you're going faster than 10 kilometers per hour, you can get a um, citation from the police. So that's one of the big things. So it's, like I said, there's no bicycle lanes. 
But if you do cycle on the sidewalk, you have to keep it, you know, really slow. Let's see another unique aspect of Japan cycling. I would say just the um, common courtesy of the drivers here compared, you know, I've only been to South Korea and the U.S. I would say Japan has the most courteous drivers for cyclists here. And let me see a third aspect. So, yeah, the, the cycling community. Yeah, it is. It is. I have to say it is very, very strong here as far as the bike shops, the people. You know, you, you see how competitive some areas are, especially when like another road cyclist see another road cyclist. But I mean, over here. I have to say, yes, it is very relaxed. It, the cafes here too, um, the coffee shops are very bicycle friendly here. There's also bike packing cafes too and bike shops and they'll help with tourists who come to Okinawa. And I have to say they put out a pretty good assistance for tourists who want to just, you know, instead of renting a car, they'll uh, loan you a bike. And I think it's maybe 50 bucks for two weeks and uh, you can just tour the island. And I think that's one of the greatest things that they encourage here for people to get out and camp and bikepacking and exploring the island. That, that's one of my favorite aspects also. That's something I actually want to get into bikepacking across the island. Okay, another one was, I think it was a motorcycle. It was like a big motorcycle week. There's a couple of guys and um, sometimes these guys are flying pretty fast. So I just got off to the um, side of the road and, uh, one of the, and one of the guys were like, oh, thanks for moving out the way we're that we were driving so fast and you know they're pretty much were doing it illegally but i mean it was pretty wild to see the speed that they were going and that's one of the unique things here because you know with the cyclist being the slowest you know is a little bit slower than traffic you know there's no type of animosity between like motorcyclists and cyclists and cars and uh, i was surprised like the whole motorcycle group like they all waved at me and they, they have some pretty nice bikes but i was expecting you know I thought it was going to be kind of a hostile situation, but it was probably the nicest situation. It was a bunch of Harleys, actually. That was pretty, pretty cool situation. You know, over 50 riders, you know, just giving them nice courtesy. As soon as I clip into my bike, I make an immediate left and then I go down and maybe I'm about a kilometer downhill and I hang a right and to the left is an area called uh, Taguchi Beach. This is a really symbolic beach because during World War II, this was one of the areas that the U.S. forces began their uh, assault. So there's a lot of historic memorials on the left. You'll see some signs and you'll also see something that's really cool too. Um, the kindergarten classes, they also do, um, I guess it's a legalized area for street graffiti and you'll see beautiful artwork. So you'll see everything from Pokemon drawn on there, various cartoon, American cartoon characters, Looney Tune characters. And a lot of emerging artists also use this wall as a place for um, just art expression. And so this is about two kilometers of just various types of beautiful street graffiti. And then on the other side of that is a beautiful memorial. And then also, there, as you keep going down, there's a place called the Hedra River. And it's a beautiful uh, river that goes out to the ocean. Um, you'll see fishing boats. You'll see kayakers, surfers. As you go up, uh, we'll go up the hill. And you'll, we're going to be going up to the main road of Okinawa called Route 58. Palm trees on your left and right. Slide uphill. You'll see signs in Japanese, but the local community has also translated the signs into English. You know, even if you get lost, you'll be able to find your way. 
You'll see a couple of cafes on your left-hand side, and on your right-hand side, you'll see a small shopping mall. Then you'll see another cafe. Then there's going to be, as you keep going up, you're going to see a beautiful drop-off scenery. Trees, palm trees, that's beautiful green scenery everywhere you go. Yeah, you can, you'll be able to see, especially when you get to the crest of the top of the hill, uh, after about 10 kilometers from biking from my apartment, yeah, you get to see the ocean. And beautiful, that beautiful blue, Carolina blue and green. And um, that's part, actually, the part of the downhill. That's the fun part of the downhill after you meet that uh, section from cycling 10 kilometers. You're the downhill section, and it's nothing but straight ocean to your left-hand side. And then there's the um, Hilton Hotel. And that's a, another bike stop area right there you can stop at and just enjoy the scenery. And uh, that's pretty much my side of the island. Uh, as you cross over, it's a little bit built up. Um, a couple of small towns, a couple of um, what we call Okinawa soba shops, uh, noodle shops there. Great smelling food, locally cooked food. Um, you'll see beautiful farm farmland out there. But pretty much um, the area that you're you're taking in is pretty much a local countryside. Um, most of the industrial areas are to the south, so I'm on the countryside, which is what I love because it's beautiful fresh air. Just want to send a shout out to my bike shop, um, bicycle shop Mayo. It's the best bike shop. It's a bicycle shop Mayo. So Mayo is spelled M-A-I-Y-O. It sticks out because it has a huge disco ball in the middle of it. <laughs> a whole wall of um, comic books and a, a great staff. And you know, as you stated before, I think I heard in your last podcast, you know, he doesn't sell many bikes, but he sells everything to make cycling easier for you. Um, he can get you any bike you want, but I truly appreciative of his help over the past couple of years. And uh, to my wonderful wife and uh, Yukari and my three kids, Luke, Leia, and Asia, <laughs> love you all. Are you a Star Wars fan? Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's uh, <laughs> probably half the house. Yep. <laughs> With Luke and Leia. Yep. I told the wife, if we have another son, his name's going to be Anakin. <laughs> if people want uh, to go see what it's like over there and they want to follow you on Instagram, where would they go? Okay, so I'm on Instagram at D underscore Mar, M-A-R, then underscore Lou, L-E-W. And that has all my cycling adventures, uh, comic book adventures, <laughs> nerd adventures, everything I post up up there. <laughs> all right. Hey, man. Thanks a lot. This is the farthest oh, phone call I've ever had. Yeah, uh, yeah, I appreciate it, Tom, and thank you for your podcast. It has been a great, you know, it's one of the best things I listen to, especially when I'm working on my bike or me and my kids are um, out and about. Thank you. Thanks a lot for your podcast. Thank you. And for you especially, may the force be with you. Okay. <laughs> may the force be with you, too. All right. Thank you, Tom. Okay. Take care. Good day, this is Rowan de Bonaire of the Velocipedium here in Lancashire, England. I'm here to remind you always to do your ABC quick check before every ride, no matter how short. So here we go. A is for air. Check those tyres, which is spelt with a Y, by the way. 
B is for brakes, C is for your chain, and quick is your quick release or your wheel nuts. Just check that those wheels are going to stay where they belong. Thank you, Tom, and here's wishing you all tailwinds and joyful cycling. Toodle pip! Thank you very much, Rowan. And if you'd like to do our ABC Quick Check in future, just email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. And if you want to see some amazing vintage bikes, check out Rowan's feed, the Velocipedium. And just a heads up, I'm going to be doing Ragbri. Yes, the ride across Iowa with 30,000 other people-ish. So for a week, we'll all be going from town to town to town. You can check out and see what it's like on social media, but look for me in the Bike Karma sign. I'll be on a surly cross-check, most likely. I'll have my recorder handy so that you can share a story or two, and I'll also have stickers and maybe some other stuff to give away. There'll be a little sign on the back of my bike, and there'll be a sign on my tent. So hopefully see you in Iowa at Ragpri 2019. I remember when I was much younger, I went to the Henry Ford Museum and they had this machine you put a few coins in and it would make a plastic mold before your eyes of a certain shape that had to do with the exhibit that was near it. I thought those machines were pretty neat, but when I got my little plastic mold, it was pretty weak. Years later, I got my first little toy from a 3D printer, but I thought it was about the same quality as that old plastic mold machine. And as exciting as 3D printing technology is, that's the ability to print like 3D objects on a printer, it's been around for years and I still associate it with those weak things. Or at least I did until I talked to Keith from Reynolds. Reynolds tubing, the Reynolds 531, some of the most iconic bicycle building frame material on the planet. First, I was really happy that Reynolds is still out there and still producing stuff because a lot of my favorite bikes, the Raleigh's and the Dawes, they're built on Reynolds tubing. It's light, it's strong, and odds are it's going to outlive me. But those classic tube sets are in the present and currently being used, but they're also just a part of Reynolds' huge history. Keith told me about the future. It was about 3D printing titanium to make bikes for the next century. And they were also 3D printing other metals as well. This was a huge eye-opener to me about where technology was going with metal bicycle frames. I talked to him at last year's North American Handmade Bicycle Show. the North American Handmade Bicycle Show. And I am here with a representative from Reynolds Tubing. I'm Keith Norona from Reynolds. How's it going? Well, for Reynolds, this is a very good show indeed because as you've probably noticed yourself, we brought out the first of our new stainless dimensions because basically we're working with a firm called Independent Fabrications. We brought out a stainless steel 3D printed part here. But we also brought a whole bunch of tubing. So Reynolds 853, 631, 953, 921 and stainless and titanium all out here at the show. It's a great show for us but I think the interest in the 3D printed stuff has actually heartened us a lot because I think a lot of people wondering whether it's possible to do metals 
in 3D print and do it commercially. And we're showing people some of the 3D printed titanium dropouts we're already starting to sell. But the new part we're working with for independent fabrications on this created a quite a stir. So yeah, enjoying, enjoying what we're seeing here. So you're 3D printing lugs? Yeah, and in fact, this is actually what we call a bottom bracket structure because what we've done is we took an independent fabrication frame design for one person and basically created a structure around it to show what 3D printing can do. And part of it is aimed at reducing the time required to get some of the clearances in a quite complex geometry at the bottom bracket shell, but also adding features to make it easier for them to build. And it is technically difficult, and what we've been doing is using finite element analysis to try and put metal where it matters, just like tube butting actually. But showing people you can now do it in a very high uh, stainless steel, which is laser sintered to form this product. And what we're showing here at the sh uh, at NABS is the bed plate with these two parts on it to show what the first ones look like. And we will continue this work with independent fabrications the weeks after the show. So they'll, we'll have this thing cut off the bed plate, be turned into a frame, which will be tested, we'll refine it and then turn it into production. And then later on, and it'll be in months, these will become production frames. We would say, 3D printing is pretty expensive, but our job with Reynolds is to find a way to make this work for the custom builder so they can afford to buy these really interesting technologies and apply it into a frame. So some of my listeners are just like normal Joes on the street who yeah. will ride a bike more than they'll build a bike. Yeah. So when we first saw 3D printers come out a few years ago, we'd be like, oh, that's so cool, you can make this. And then it would be a plastic thing that would crumble at the slightest touch. Yeah. So how, just in a very general sense, do you 3D print something of metal? Okay. Now, those there's several angles you've brought out there which are going to be difficult to explain but basically because we're in metals one thing we'll deliberately say is we are looking for parts that will last decades people who you yourself mentioned you've got a Reynolds bike a lot of our customers have bikes that have lasted decades you know 30 40 50 years is not unusual for a steel bike the parts that we're making and designing for this are aimed at literally lasting decades as well and they're normally made with metals that will be recyclable and at the end of life, you can melt them and put them back into the mix so you can use them again. The designs that we've got here and we're demonstrating at NABS are using some of those technologies. So powdered metal, laser fused to make the part in a way that would be very, very difficult to do in things like casting or uh, machining. And also these are done in very low volume. So almost each person who wants a custom frame is having something built for them specifically. There is a cost to it, and we're trying to find ways to get the cost down. But because we are commercial manufacturers, it's not in our interest to just create a prototype part that will never be used again. So we're trying to find ways to make this work for the builder. So for also people outside of the bike field, mm -hmm. in particular, who are more riders, mm -hmm. there is a almost cult-like following to Reynolds. Um, and that Reynolds 531, used on rallies and just legendary stuff there. Um, and one of the things that's loved so much about it is its dependability. And so when you're doing something as rally, looking at something that's not gonna be throwaway, yeah. and you're talking about being able to customize it to the point of customizing carbon, mm -hmm. but doing it in a metal, 
that's really exciting. Now, I think for us, I say, we take it for granted and say, again, half my people we've been talking at the show because so many people have got so many Reynolds bikes, but they've lasted for you know very long time. What we're trying to do with the alloys we do in still, remember that Reynolds is now nearly 120 years old, but the butting that it invented back in 1898, the principles of butting are applicable even now. And the 3D print, interestingly, is put the metal where it's needed, to, where it works hardest. Very similar idea to butting itself. So what we think is, if we can use the technology of today, ironically allied to what we invented in butting 120 years ago, it still could make a very good bike, which should last a very long time. Now, I'm going to say that there, there might be some crude Americans who are just sitting back and saying, ha ha, he said but. <laughs> what does butting mean? Okay, that's a fair comment. Good one, yeah. In our terminology, and in England, two butting, so basically you've heard of double butting and triple butting. All it really means, the way we use that word, is to basically say variable wall thickness. And in the original frames that were made in the very early uh, 20th, 19th century, what would have happened is they would have used what we call a straight gauge or plain gauge wall, which would be thick at both ends, because the ends of the frame, the joints, are where a lot of stress is going to be and also the welders at the time or the guys who were doing braze frames they put a lot of heat in those areas Reynolds back in 1898 found a way to reduce the wall thickness where it wasn't needed like the middle of the frame we could change the dimension for for example one millimeter at each end of the tube and maybe use 0.6 of a millimeter in the middle and that could save 30 percent of the weight of a frame so that original technology is still applicable now and People something double butted, pole butted and all that. All it means is basically how many changes in dimensions on the tube. So we make, for example, Reynolds 953, our thinnest wall tubes are 0.5 mil at each end of the tube and 0.3 mil in the middle of the tube. But that can save a significant amount of weight in the frame. And it's not because weights are most important angle but for some people why on a very strong metal why have you got this excess metal why don't you just reduce the weight if it's not doing anything for you and that's what tube butting will do for you and these are in the days previously when a lot of bicycle manufacturers also made guns and if they made a mistake in gun production they would literally use rifle barrels yes. to become the tubing which was horribly heavy and it was just miserable and there there would be even gas pipe yeah. that would just be like the same pipe that they would use to make gas and that's when Reynolds first came onto the scene is to say this is ridiculous nonsense yeah. we can definitely make this better yeah. so you guys weathered it you made it through yeah. the whole aluminum the yeah. whole carbon yeah. and now you're seeing a renaissance yeah. And I think it is fair to say, Renaissance, we will ex accept we are in a niche at the high end. But if we look at people, for example, who still got 531 frames, even now, the strength of a 531 frame still rates. You know, it is still a good metal. Something like it was introduced in 1935, just to put some perspective on it. Even now, a, a bike using 531 is still technically very good. We've concentrated on using metals that will last a long time. This thing about durability is something we keep repeating because how do we improve the bike frame? By getting very good chemistry alloys that will stand the test of time and they've got to be able to be fabricated either brazed or TIG welded or silver brazed into lugs and those manufacturing methods have lasted a long time as well. So really for Reynolds 
we're trying to combine the technology of butting, say with this ability to have variable wall thickness, so you put your metal where it's needed, plus modern alloys in steel and in titanium, which have got a very high yield strength, and the combination of the two is what makes a lightweight frame, or one that'll last a long time. And one that can also be almost universally recycled. Absolutely. It's something we take for granted, but becomes importantly more important as time goes on. So we are very proud of the fact that a lot of our customers keep frames for decades. Thank you very much. And it's nice to finally meet somebody from the Reynolds company. Where are you guys out of these days? We are, Reynolds are still based in Birmingham, England. And we, ironically, as we get more interested in our own history, we're basically probably about six miles away from where we started in 1848 nail making in Birmingham. But we, we moved our factory about 2007, about a mile from the original factory in Tisley. So very much uh, Birmingham based. And we've got a few employees who've like done 40 years service with the business. Thank you very much. Thank you for your talk. You can look up Reynolds Technology online or you can also look on Reynolds Technology One Word on Instagram. Well, you've reached the end of another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast. I've been your host, Tom Brown. I want to thank everybody who contributed to the show, including Jenny, Durrell, Keith, and Rowan. I want to thank, as always, Keller Glass and the band Mobjack for our opening and closing theme music. All our other music was royalty-free, and thank you to those artists as well. Thanks to Fred Thomas from The Frame and Wheel and 80 Bikes for their support of the show. And thanks to everybody downloading in all 50 states and over 50 countries. I really appreciate you following me along for the ride. If you have comments, story ideas, suggestions, or maybe you have a product that might fit on the show, you can contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. The Bike Karma Podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including trademarks, copyrights, etc., are reserved and asserted. As Rowan said earlier, don't forget to do that ABC quick check. It's so easy when you take out your wheels to put it into the back of the car to forget to do everything properly. So just do that ABC quick check every time before you ride. Make it a habit. I know it gets oversaid, but please follow us on social media. We're on everything that we could find. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Just type in Bike Karma and see what comes up. Then look for the cat head and you're there. And while you're waiting for your next show to download, please go check out our guests and sponsors and follow their pages on social media. I've been told you'll get less flat tires if you do that. It's just karma. Well, until next time, keep it wheel. Down, but I'd